0: Hey, this is the Up North Lowdown from and Public Radio. I'm Ed Ronco, and we're starting this week's episode in my kitchen, where I am chopping a shallot and trying not to cry. Shallots always get me. Uh, let me just put the paper over here. There we go. Anyway, whenever I do this, uh, there's always just a little food waste. You know, that, that root end of the shallot that you can't really use for anything. When I use lemons, I have rinds left over. Bananas also cause trouble. They've got peels that you can't do much with. And that's just my kitchen. What happens if you are a big restaurant going through pounds and pounds of food every single night? Well, in Traverse City, they are hoping to convince more restaurants to start composting that food waste. And that is our top story this week. So let's get started. Oh, the onions got me. Ah. Restaurants in Traverse City could start composting by this summer, thanks to a new program from the city's Downtown Development Authority. The goal is for those restaurants to become more sustainable and to cut down on greenhouse gas emissions. And as IPR climate reporter Izzy Ross tells us, what happens downtown could follow an example already being set by restaurants elsewhere in the city. I'm gonna let her tell you the story while I go dry my onion tears. Listen to this.
1: Trattoria Stella is on the ground floor of one of the stately buildings at the Grand Traverse Commons, just outside the city's downtown area. It's early evening and people are already seated around the warm, softly-lit dining room. We just- Head back to the kitchen, and it's bright and loud. Sauce walking. Sous-chef Austin Lowe is overseeing cooks preparing oysters, salads, pizzas. On the floor next to him is a green bucket.
0: We have all these biodegradable bags, and uh, usually we have these 22 quart containers set up at all the stations.
1: They're working with the local nonprofit, Seeds, to compost some of their food waste.
0: They don't take any cooked food at all peels, rinds, vegetable scraps that we discard that people don't normally eat.
1: The restaurant has been composting for about two years, and the community will see more efforts like this in 2024. Grand Traverse County generates around 19,000 tons of organic waste annually. When that waste goes to the landfill, it creates a lot of methane. Composting is an obvious way to cut those emissions. It aerates organic waste as it's decomposing, which means bacteria don't emit as much methane. Now Traverse City wants to get downtown restaurants to do the same as Trattoria Stella. The food scraps go to the composting site at Historic Barnes Park. It's used in composting demonstrations.
2: And then it is applied at the Seeds Farm and supports our collaboration with the Father Fred Food Pantry and the food that is raised
1: to donate to them. Jennifer Flynn is a program director at Seeds, which is already working with two businesses. We have composted you know, over 6,700 pounds in 2023. The state has increasingly focused on composting as a way to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. A year ago, lawmakers changed Michigan's solid waste law to promote recycling and composting. But even before that, communities around northern Michigan have been working to get composting programs off the ground. Flynn says her organization does some work educating their partners and the public, and that there are already some great programs up north. Emmett County
3: is a shining example of composting in the region.
1: I recently went to Petoskey and spoke with Lindsay Walker, the county's recycling outreach specialist. We've got a pretty established dual stream recycling system. We operate a transfer station, recycling center, and composting and wood recycling site in Harbor Springs. We have really good policy in the absence of both state and federal policy to incentivize recycling and diversion from landfill. Basically, they aimed at people's wallets. In Emmett County, it's more expensive to throw stuff away than it is to recycle or compost it. And that system seems to be working. Walker says around 40 businesses in Emmett now compost. Through the county and other sources, more than 40% of its waste was recovered in 2021. That's twice the current statewide recycling rate. Emmett was well-positioned to start handling food waste in 2015. Walker says they already controlled how the waste moved and had recycling and yard waste programs. Our restaurants that were already recycling with us and doing a great job of not sending materials to landfill were looking for that next low-hanging fruit. So no pun intended, but food waste is a really easy, actionable item to move out of the waste stream and into the circular economy of composting in Michigan. Walker says it's a good sign that Traverse City is investing in composting. In addition to downtown restaurants, the city is also working on a household composting program. It plans to roll that out this year.
0: IPR's Izzy Ross on composting. Her work comes to us through a partnership with Grist. And we will be right back.
3: This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming, you're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you wanna do something, then just do it.
0: Just take that first step.
3: Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR.
0: Hi, Dan Wanshura from Points North here. When I was 13, I bought a baby red-eared slider at a flea market in Florida. (laughs) I named the turtle Oki and brought her back home to Minnesota. I kept her for about two and a half years before letting her go in a local pond. Well, it turns out a lot of people do this with these turtles. And because of it, red-eared sliders are taking over the Great Lakes and the world. Sort of. What happens when pet turtles get released into the wild? Next time on Points North. That episode of Points North is now available. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. A lot of smaller communities in rural areas count on grant money to get stuff done. They don't have big budgets. So when you need a street repaired or you want to start a community wellness program or you just need to get a project finished, you look for money wherever you can find it. But rural communities often struggle the most to get their hands on that money. Researchers from the University of Michigan have noticed a significant gap between rural communities and obtaining state or federal funding. The latest Michigan public policy survey asked local governments what they need, and IPR's Michael Livingston spoke to the project manager, Deborah Horner, about her findings.
2: That survey uh, measured the confidence levels of government officials on their abilities to access and administer grant funding. Can you summarize what you found?
3: Sure. So this is a survey research program that uh, the Center for Local, State, and Urban Policy has conducted since 2009. So we've been doing it for 14, almost 15 years. And it's a census survey of all of the local governments across the state of Michigan, every county, city, village, and township across the state. There's 1,856 of them. And we survey them once or twice a year on all of the different topics that might touch upon local government policy. And what we found is there's a a core group um, who, are very confident that they can get grant money. They can they can monitor for future grant money opportunities. They, can, they are confident they can successfully apply for it. About one in five jurisdictions across the state are, are very confident in that ability. However, there's over a quarter across the state that are not confident that their jurisdictions can monitor future grant opportunities. And a third aren't confident that they can successfully apply for those grant funding opportunities. So while there are people out there who are in larger counties and larger cities, who, who have um, the staff and the expertise and the, the resources to be able to pursue um, available grant funding from the state and federal governments. There's lots of small and mid-sized um, types of local governments out there who just really aren't able to, to navigate that process.
2: Yeah, I, I looked and saw that many of these local governments with low confidence levels were in more rural areas. Um, does that tell us anything as to why these officials feel the way they do?
3: Very, relatively few uh, local leaders in rural places feel like they can they can um, seek out, even monitor, much less apply and and, and win grant funding. Um, kind of their their concerns about this fell into to two main categories. Um, one is is very much a lack of expertise and resources. So they they don't have grant writers. They don't have current staff who know how to write grants. They they need training in this. They don't have people who can devote much time to it because they're they're busy doing other things that they're responsible for around the township or the village. Um, and then uh, another big issue around the the concerns that rural and smaller local government leaders have is around. Kind of communication about available grants. So um, there's there's not one clearinghouse for communication about the different opportunities for applying for grants.
2: Yeah. It, it feels like every day I'm writing a new story about ARPA funding opportunities or grants from the state. Can you explain why those types of programs are important for small communities like the ones we have in northern Michigan?
3: A lot of um, local governments are funded uh, in Michigan uh, through their property tax, and property tax uh, has the benefit of being a very stable source of income for local governments, um, but unfortunately, the flip side of that is is there's not much change in property tax. Um, and unfortunately, recently during the Great Recession, uh, there was an in fact a huge drop in property tax revenues that has just recently kind of come back to where it was in two thousand nine. Um, and and COVID didn't help either. Uh, and so we are we're in a situation where local governments really are kind of treading water in terms of, uh, or if they're lucky in terms of the their their current funding and being able to just fund their current operations and what they're required to do. So for example, small townships must run elections. And so they have to put a certain amount of their budget into that. Um, So really, if they want to look to improve their operations, do new things, uh, improve water and sewer, improve roads, improve public safety. They're going to need to look for external funding in order to do that.
2: So what do you think needs to change to defy these numbers? Uh, What solutions could we take to better include small communities in conversations about grant funding? You mentioned staffing and communication being the two biggest issues. How do we tackle them?
3: The grant pursuit process is not a one-size-fits-all process. Large counties and large cities across the state have certain kinds of information, certain kinds of resources, certain kinds of guidelines that they can meet that aren't the same as what local governments that are small and rural have. And so it'd be great if the state could work into their system, uh, you know, a more accessible system that really targets small local governments, provides them directly with the communications they need, bundle it all into one place rather than, um, you know, having people have to seek out opportunities in, in different places where they might not even know where to look. So a consolidated list of grants. Um, maybe things like workshops or help desks or other kinds of, of what we might consider concierge services that would allow local governments to to be brought into the system as opposed to having to chase down all the opportunities themselves.
2: Dr. Horner, thanks again for the opportunity to speak to you.
3: Yeah, it was really great to talk to you today.
0: That was IPR's Michael Livingston speaking with Deborah Horner at the University of Michigan. Horner's team is also surveying communities about the state's new clean energy plan. They hope to have those results out later this year. Okay, let's look at some of the other stories making news this week in Michigan. The group Flow for Love of Water plans to appeal a recent state permit for Line 5. Last month, the Michigan Public Service Commission granted Enbridge a permit to build a new section of the pipeline in a proposed tunnel under the Straits of Mackinac. Flo says that decision violates the Michigan Environmental Protection Act. Four Michigan tribes are also appealing the state's permit decision. The new year brought a raise for the lowest paid workers in our state. Michigan's minimum wage went up on January 1st from 1010 an hour to 1033 an hour. There are some smaller boosts for tipped workers, young people, minors, and new employees on a 90 day training period. Many employers are already paying above minimum wage, by the way. It is, after all, a competitive labor market. The Great Lakes have some of the lowest ice levels seen in the last 50 years. WCMU reports that right now it is less than 1% of ice coverage on the lakes. Usually around this time, the lakes are at about 10%. The National Weather Service says ice coverage could expand as temperatures drop this month and next. Drive out to the end of the old Mission Peninsula, north of Traverse City, and you will be at the Mission Point Lighthouse. The more than 150-year-old building and its grounds are about to get some upgrades. That includes more parking, new boardwalks, beach stairs, and a telescope. Officials are hoping to build replicas of a historic boathouse and barn as well, with the latter being accessible for people with disabilities. The lighthouse itself is not. That lighthouse is a popular destination for visitors to our region, and we could soon see many more. Visitors, not lighthouses. CNN this week named Northwest Lower Michigan as one of its best travel destinations for 2024. The list, which also includes an island in Indonesia and the Black Sea coast of Turkey, says there's a lot to do in our little corner of the mitten, not the least of which is spending time near, quote, refreshing Unsalty Lake Michigan. We like to think that we here at IPR are also refreshing and unsalty. That is it for this week's lowdown. We had contributions from Izzy Ross and Michael Livingston. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our producer is Max Copeland, who also hopped into the chair to host two episodes at the end of last month when COVID finally found me and kept me home. Thank you, Max. I'm Ed Ronco. Please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on your favorite podcast app. It helps people find us. For our Sonic send-off this week, we leave you with a little more noise from my kitchen as I'm chopping onions. Thanks for listening. Try not to cry.
2: Composers have found countless ways to illustrate the beauty, mystery, and power of water in their music. I'm Keith Brown. On Gameplay This Week, We'll enjoy some video game water music. We'll hear the colors of ethereal orchestras and choirs, synthesizers, piano, and lots more. It's water music, this week on Gameplay. Stay with me. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.